of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director of Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. On this episode of the podcast, we're speaking with Mr. Jim Sandman, who is a distinguished lecturer and senior consultant to the future of the profession at Penn Law. He's also the commencement speaker for the class of 2020, coming up here in a couple weeks at SPAC. He has a decades-long career in private practice with big law firms in government service and as a public interest lawyer, and he's currently the chair of the American Bar Association's Task Force on Legal issues arising out of the 2020 pandemic. He's also the son of the late Edgar Sandman from the class of 1946 and a supporter of the family's Edgar and Margaret Sandman Fellow. Jim is just a great guy to speak with and I think that really comes through in this episode of the show. Before we get to it though, our announcements here at the start of the podcast as always. And as we mentioned, albanylaw.edu slash commencement. That'll give you all the details that you need to make sure that you have everything in line to come to the commencement ceremonies here in a couple weeks. albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus. More details there if you need them. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Keeps up to date on everything happening here on campus. And if you like this episode of the podcast, you want to hear more, go to all the major podcast services and subscribe or check out our SoundCloud account. Enough announcements though, let's talk to Jim. Back here on the podcast with Jim Salmon. And Jim, if you just take a second to introduce yourself to everybody listening to the show today. Hi, I'm Jim Sandman. I'm a member of the law school's board of trustees, and I'm thrilled to be the commencement speaker for the class of 2020. And we are absolutely ecstatic to have you coming back to do the class of 2020 commencement. It's been a long time, a long road. But before we get down that road, and we're happy to have you on the show today as well, I did want to ask you, why did you want to become a lawyer? I wanted to make a difference. When I made the decision to go to law school, I wasn't necessarily making the decision that I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to get a law degree. It's a very versatile degree. I saw people with law degrees not only as practicing lawyers, but in business, in public service, in academia, in journalism, heading public interest organizations. All of those would provide an opportunity to make a difference. Those were all things I could imagine myself doing. So I started out to get a law degree. When I got to law school, I found that I liked the mode of analysis. I liked reading cases. And what I realized was most of the people who have law degrees and end up doing other things in business or public service, they don't start out in those other things. They start out as practicing lawyers and then move to them. So that's what I did. I started out as a, as a practicing lawyer with a law firm. And you mentioned versatility there, and you've had such a versatile career. And I just want to touch on some of the, some of the highlights here as we're, as we're going through. And I know you've gone down all these many paths, but one of those primary ones was your work with the international Washington-based law firm, Arnold & Porter. Can you tell us more about that and how you got started there? Yes, I had an extraordinary experience there, very unusual I spent 30 years at Arnold and Porter, which sounds very stable, maybe even boring, but I had multiple careers in, in those 30 years. I started out in the Washington office, the main office at the time, the only office of the firm, a big office, and I did antitrust work, and I found it 
uh, very interesting and challenging. After three and a half years there, I was given the opportunity to go out to the office, the firm's first office uh, outside of Washington in Denver to help out for a period when the office was new and overworked and understaffed. I was asked if I'd be willing to go out there for three months to help out. And I said, yeah, three months in Colorado sounds fun. I got out there and I loved it. It was a wildly different experience from working in the big office in Washington. I was lawyer number six. It was a very small office. I knew everyone in the office. The cases I had were smaller than the cases that I'd worked on in the Washington office. They were mine, my cases. And within three weeks of arriving in Denver, I found myself arguing motions in court, which I had never had an opportunity to do as associate number four on the big cases in, in Washington. I liked it so much, I stayed for 10 years. Three months turned into 10 years. And it was there that I got my first law firm management experience uh, in a small way, in a, in a small office. After 10 years, a firm contacted me and said that they were opening a new office in Los Angeles and asked if I would uh, go out and open it and be the managing partner there. Because I'd had experience in a smaller office of the, of the firm, I thought it was a good fit. And I said, yes. And I said, well, how, how long? I don't want to pick up my personal life and move to Los Angeles. How long are you thinking of? And they said, about three months. <laughs> and I thought I'd heard this story before. Uh, well, it, it, it didn't turn out to be 10 years. I spent 14 months there uh, setting up an office. And that was like a startup, a brand new. I was there on day one with a group of 14 lawyers who had decided to relocate from some from other offices of Arnold and Porter, some from other law firms, all having made the decision that they wanted to be a part of this new enterprise because they thought it would be better than whatever they were leaving behind. It's magic if you can capture it. People who are excited to be in a new place and want to contribute to it. It, it just, it, it, it felt like a startup. So uh, I did that for 14 months. Uh, over the course of all this time out in Denver and Los Angeles, I met my wife. Uh, we had two children. One was born in Denver, one was born in Los Angeles, and we decided to move back to Washington to be closer to our families. So I came back to Washington, and three years later, I became managing partner of the entire firm. I spent 10 years as managing partner, which is a very different job from being a practicing lawyer. I did continue to maintain a practice, but I spent the vast majority of my time on firm management, managing a business. I had to deal with everything from information to technology, to accounting and finance, to marketing, to strategic planning, to every personnel issue imaginable. And I loved the variety uh, of it. Not a single uh, day was, was boring. In 30 years, I had those, those kinds of experiences. I, I'm very grateful for having variety. One thing that was really important to me in choosing that firm, and one thing that had a lot to do with why I stayed for 30 years, was the firm's pro bono program. Arnold and Porter has one of the world's uh, finest pro bono programs. Arnold and Porter represented Clarence Gideon in the case of Gideon versus Wainwright in the Supreme Court of the United States, the case that established the right to counsel in criminal cases in state courts. And that experience infused the culture of the firm. Everyone did pro bono work. I did pro bono work from the day I joined the firm until the day I left, including during the 10 years that I was managing partner. And that uh, provided a very important source of personal gratification for me. It allowed me to realize that ambition I had when I first made the decision to go to law school to make a difference. 
and you mentioned pro bono work is and that is so important to Albany Law School and the Albany Law School experience as well and I know you served as and now currently serve as president emeritus of the Legal Services Corporation which for those who don't know is the largest funder of civil legal aid in the United States with more than 850 offices in every state and territory in the country so I would just love to get more of your perspective on why pro bono is so important and why it's so important to do it in your law school tenure while you're going to law school. Pro bono is so important because the need is so great. It, this is a, um, an underappreciated issue in American society. In 76% of all cases in state courts today, at least one of the parties doesn't have a lawyer. What you see on TV about cases and what happens in a courtroom is a fiction in the majority of cases in the United States today. What you see on TV is two lawyers representing two parties, presenting evidence, making legal arguments. That's a minority of cases in the United States today. I, I'd hazard a guess that every case that every law student reads today during the course of their three years in law school is unrepresentative of what's actually happening in the majority of cases in our country. I'm making an educated guess in saying that, but my guess is that every case a law student reads was litigated with lawyers on both sides. Otherwise, it's unlikely that the judge would have been able to write an opinion of the quality necessary to find its way into a case book. Uh, here in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., where I live, in 88% of eviction cases, the tenant has no lawyer, even though more than 90% of landlords do. It is common in the United States for uh, well over half of the victims of domestic violence seeking protection orders against their abusers not to have a lawyer. These are matters uh, that involve the most basic of human needs, the roof over your head, eviction cases and foreclosure cases, cases involving the stability of families, child support and child custody, guardianships, adoptions. They're cases that involve personal safety, protection orders against abusers. And people are going without lawyers because they can't afford to pay for one. What they confront is a very complicated, a very opaque legal system designed by lawyers for lawyers on the assumption that everybody's got a lawyer. It's a system that works pretty well if you do have a lawyer and horribly if you don't. So uh, to address these basic human needs, we need more pro bono volunteers. And the other reason I think it's important, it might sound like a philosophical issue, but there is no more important value in America than justice. The founders of our country and the framers of our constitution emphasized over and over again that their number one goal and value was justice. Alexander Hamilton said, the first duty of society is justice. And Thomas Jefferson said, the most sacred of the duties of government is to do equal and impartial justice to all its citizens. So both as a matter of being true to our fundamental values and addressing the most basic of human needs, we need pro bono help. Besides pro bono, the one other thing I noticed uh, going through your bio is you were president of the District of Columbia Bar, and that's a 110,000-member bar. With the responsibility of all the lawyers in D.C., I, I'm hoping you can share a little bit about what that position was and what it entailed. 
Yeah, it was a very uh, interesting experience. There are a lot of lawyers in Washington, and actually a lot of members of the D.C. Bar are spread across the United States. They're not just in Washington, D.C. Uh, the District of Columbia Bar is what they call a mandatory bar. It is the entity you must belong to to be licensed to practice law in the District of Columbia. Its official status is as an arm of the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, the highest local court in the District of Columbia. The D.C. Bar is different from voluntary bar associations like the New York State Bar Association. You don't have to be a member of the New York State Bar Association to be licensed to practice in New York. The D.C. Bar uh, deals with matters like uh, continuing legal education. It has sections organized by substantive practice area, things like family law or litigation to help lawyers hone their substantive expertise. Uh, the bar proposes rules changes, uh, changes to the rules of professional responsibility for the Court of Appeals to consider, or uh, amendments to the rules of procedure, the criminal procedure, the rules of evidence. The bar functions as a liaison uh, to the courts of the, of the District of Columbia because of its official status. So I dealt regularly with the Chief Judge of the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, our highest court, and the District of Columbia Superior Court, our, our trial courts. It's a fascinating experience. We've been taking some time to look back at the past experiences you've had, but I did want to spin it forward a little bit too. One of your current positions is a special consultant to the future of the profession at Penn Law. And I would be remiss to ask, what is the future of the legal profession? I guess I'd start by saying uh, the legal profession changes slowly in my experience. I've been a lawyer for a while now and uh, the profession looks pretty similar to me now uh, from what it looked like to me when I started. Of course, there have been changes, but is it wildly different? Is it difficult to recognize and compare the two, what it looked like then and what it looks like now? No, not, not wildly different. I'd say if you want to know what the future of the profession looks like, take a, take a look at uh, states like uh, Utah and Arizona, which are really leading the charge in rethinking client service and trying to address this problem of so many people without lawyers. What they've done in each state is to license paraprofessionals, people who don't have JDs, but who have professional training. They're regulated, they're required to comply with ethical rules, and they're able to provide a type of legal service that currently can't be provided in other states without violating restrictions on the unauthorized practice of law. They're permitting the sharing of fees with people who are not lawyers, which is not uh, currently permitted in other states, and to permit non-lawyer ownership of legal services organizations. What they're trying to promote is a form of holistic legal service multidisciplinary legal service, where lawyers can work not just with other lawyers, but in combination with social workers, financial planners, financial advisors, people who have other kinds of expertise that clients need to deal with their problems. You know, mo most clients don't label, spend a lot of time labeling their problems as a legal problem or a financial problem. They just got a problem and they want the problem solved. And often that problem can be solved by people from different disciplines and professions working together with the client. The current regulation of the legal profession makes it difficult to do that. States like Utah and Arizona are showing how it can be done. Another problem that we've all dealt with here the last year and a half, really, COVID-19. COVID-19 has been such a dominant force in life. 
As the chair of the American Bar Association's task force on legal needs arising out of the pandemic, what are some of those needs? Some of them are substantive needs. Some of them are procedural needs. Uh, The biggest single legal need that I see arising out of the pandemic is help with eviction cases. There's been a lot of publicity about this, the number of people who, because they lost their jobs during the pandemic, haven't been able to meet their rent obligations and are facing eviction. There have been a number of moratoria on on evictions, uh, some enacted at the state and local level, uh, then a federal one adopted by the Centers for Disease Control. But those are are coming to an end, and people anticipate a flood of evictions. Uh, That that will be a crisis for the country. When people lose their homes in large numbers, uh, um, that, that has serious societal consequences. Your life spins out of control when you lose your home. We've been working to try to mobilize members of the bar to provide help with that uh, and to lobby uh, Congress and have done that successfully to to date, try to get rent relief, that is uh, money appropriated by Congress uh, to be paid directly to landlords on behalf of tenants who've fallen behind on their rent because of pandemic-related reasons. A second need is accessing benefits programs. Uh, The federal government has adopted a lot of benefits programs to provide assistance to people, but applying for them, uh, following through, actually getting the benefit can be hard uh, for people. And they need help from lawyers in accessing what the federal government has made available to them. And finally, courts have gone online in the past year and more. And there have been a number of issues about making access to the courts online available across the digital divide. Your access shouldn't depend on whether you have the right computer equipment or or not. And uh, actually, I think that this is by and large a good news story. The statistics are showing that because of the relative ease of participating in court proceedings remotely uh, by computer, as opposed to the requirement that people show up in person, uh, more people are appearing in court and not defaulting, that is losing their cases simply because they didn't show up, than was the case in the, in the past. And uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. And courts have done a number of things to try to accommodate people who may not have the the right equipment or a strong Wi-Fi connection. For example, here in Washington, D.C., where I live, the court system has set up a series of neighborhood centers in municipal facilities where people who may not have uh, the right equipment at home or a strong Wi-Fi connection or may have just kind of a chaotic house because the kids are being homeschooled and they live in a multi-generational household where the atmosphere isn't conducive to participating in a court hearing, They can go to a quiet professional place in a public library or other municipal facility and they'll find the right equipment, good Wi-Fi connection, quiet room to participate in a court proceeding. I hope these things become permanent because the requirement of in-court appearance is for many a barrier to justice. It requires that they arrange for childcare and transportation, that they take time off from what may be a a low-paying job to to get to court. For many people, those barriers are so significant that they they just can't get to court. And uh, that's a phenomenon that affects not just low-income people, but middle-income people as well. If you can bring the courts to the people, which is what remote access does, you can help overcome that problem. I think that's a good thing. One thing that's so great for us here at Albany Law School, just selfishly, is that you, you're speaking here with the commencement class of 2020, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. And of course, that 
ceremony was delayed for a year. So thank you for sticking around for a year, first of all. But so much has changed from last May to this one. Did you have anything in the 2020 version of your comments that's changed to the 2021 version? My basic theme is the same. My theme is one of hope. And I think that's needed more than ever uh, now. I've done some tweaks. I have some examples to illustrate the points that I want to make. And I've, I've changed an example or two to accommodate what's happened. What I don't want to do is to give a speech about uh, COVID. I think people have COVID fatigue. <laughs> uh, I, I think what, uh, what people need is hope and inspiration to move on to the future. Any little previews you want to divulge here on the podcast? Or are you going to save everything for the big day? Oh Ben, come on! I'm, I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna do a spoiler for my own <laughs> nice try. Uh, we always I, like to I, get I, those teasers in when we can. I, I do have a couple of rules. Most people don't go to the commencement speech for the commence to a commencement for the commencement speech. Uh, so uh, my my rules are: you need to have one message. Don't have 15 messages. No one will ever remember that. It needs to be a, a message that people can feed back and maybe remember for more than five minutes. And it needs to be something inspiring. That's my goal. Good rules. Good, good rules. Good goals. A couple more here before we get to the lightning round. You mentioned it at the top here, but you're also a member of the Board of Trustees here at Albany Law School. We've been talking about the future a little bit as a member of the board. What do you think about the future of Albany Law School? I think the future of Albany Law School is very bright. Albany Law School is innovative and adaptable and versatile, nimble, uh, in significant part because of its independence, because it's not part of a clunky university system where they have to go through layers of approval to do what they want to do. And I think the way, for example, that the law school responded to the pandemic is an example of that. The law school has a brilliant faculty that is very dedicated to the students and administration that to me views the students as clients. <laughs> they think their job is to serve clients. I, I perceive at Albany Law School a real sense of community that I think is very unusual among law schools. When you ask most people uh, who aren't in law school or haven't gone to law school, do a free association. What do you think of law school? They're, going to, they're likely to say something like, ick, uh, <laughs> too, too hard, competitive, cutthroat, uh, whatever they've seen in movies on TV shows about law school is generally not attractive. And Albany Law School just buffs right through all those stereotypes. I think of it as a kind, caring community. Last one before the lightning round. And speaking of Albany Law School, is your dad, Edgar Sandman graduated from Albany Law in 1946, and he was just a pillar of the law school. He served on the board of trustees for decades, and he was the chairman of the board, and he received an honorary degree from the law school at SPAC, where you're going to be speaking in 1991. And while we were talking off mic and over email while we were setting the podcast up here, is that you serve on the law school's board in honor of his memory. Can you just share us some of the memories and why he is so important to you? Albany Law School meant an awful lot to my dad. My dad had a very hard start in life. His dad died when he was 15 months old. His dad was a chemist, and during World War I, he worked at a chemical munitions facility here in, in Washington, D.C., on things like mustard gas and arsenic and 
chemical weapons that have since been outlawed by the Geneva Conventions. And as a result of his exposures, uh, he contracted encephalitis and died at a very young age. Uh, my grandmother was left a widow at 25. So he never really knew his, his dad, uh, but he, he got the benefit of a great education, including an education at, at Albany Law School. And he did very well at, at Albany Law School. My mother uh, described him as a late bloomer. Uh, I think he came into his own there. When he graduated in 1946, the job market was not good for lawyers. There was a flood of new law school graduates uh, coming into the market. Uh, I, I think the year my dad officially got his degree, 1946, there might have been three classes that graduated from Albany Law School that year. They were doing sort of um, multiple tracks uh, to try to get people who had started at the law school before the war, like my dad, through to their, uh, their G JDs at the same time that they were educating people who had done the, the normal track. So there's a flood of new lawyers coming on the market and the demand wasn't there for them. So my dad couldn't get a job in a, in a law firm. Uh, he started at a bank and with his uh, law degree on his first day at work, he rolled pennies in the basement. His starting salary was $1,200 a year. He went on to become president of that bank and ultimately uh, moved to New York City and uh, ended his career as a senior executive of one of the biggest banks in the, in the country. He always credited his Albany Law School education to his, with his success, even though he, he wasn't a practicing lawyer. He was a very humble and modest man. No one would ever describe him as a showboater, but he was very successful. He always gave back to his community. He was honored many times and in many ways, including by the law school. Toward the end of his life, I asked him, of all the honors he'd received, what meant the most to him? And he didn't miss a beat before he said, Albany Law School. And I said, why? And he said, there's nothing like being honored by your own. It made me feel that I'd done them proud. So <clears throat> I joined the board after my dad died, but I know he's smiling to think about my being on the board and being the commencement speaker this year. Oh, that's incredible. And, you know, it's, it's alums like your father and many others that, that make Albany Law School such a, such a special place, such a deep-rooted well-loved community and and we we just thank every single one of them that has gone on to such great things and has made albany law what it is today we do have a couple lightning round questions jim do you, you ready for the lightning round go for it all right here we go you've obviously had many experiences in the legal field but what do you like to do outside of the law what do you enjoy doing are you do you like to fish do you watch baseball do you play baseball do you are you a photographer what do you do outside of the law i'm kind of a fitness nut <laughs> We're talking at, what, 10, 15, 10, 30 in the morning. I've already worked out for an hour, and I'll have more later in the day. I like to ride my bike. Washington is a great bike riding city. My favorite route is to ride uh, on the path along the Potomac River down to Mount Vernon. Uh, it's 22 miles each way, so I don't get to do it very often, but it's really invigorating experience. My real hobby is being a volunteer. I... Uh, I volunteer a lot. I do all kinds of different things. I'm involved with many different organizations. I try to follow my dad's example and my mom's uh, by giving back to the community that I'm a part of. That enriches my life. It gets me exposed to people outside my my professional world. So I serve on the board, for example, of, of Washington Performing Arts. I 
chair of the board of um, the DC Campaign to Preventing Pregnancy. I'm on the board of the Pro Bono Institute. Some of the things, I'm on the board of my church. Some of the things I do are law-related. Many, many are not. I, I keep very busy and um, love my extracurricular activities. Now, for those of you listening to the podcast, you can actually see Jim. Jim is in a very nice suit and looking very dapper. So you wouldn't be able to tell that he has worked out already today and plans on working out more. (laughs) Since you're going to be speaking at commencement, I needed to get your opinion on what's the best book to give a graduate this time of year. We always hear Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go is like the go-to book for graduates. Is that true? I'd recommend a different book for law graduates. Um, I would recommend a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Uh, It was made into a movie a couple of years ago starring Jamie Foxx and Michael B. Jordan. Uh, I think Brian Stevenson is the finest lawyer in the United States today. He heads the Equal Justice Institute in Montgomery, Alabama. He is personally responsible for having one new trials or exoneration for more than 150 people on death row. Uh, this is a man who saves lives. This is a man who uses law to make a difference. Uh, he works on reforming the, the juvenile justice system where too many youth end up incarcerated for very, very long periods of time in adult uh, facilities. He won the Supreme Court case that held that it is unconstitutional to sentence a juvenile to life in prison with no possibility of parole. His book it is absolutely inspirational. When I finished reading it and closed it, I had two reactions. Number one, I thought, this man is a saint. Number two, I thought, I am so inadequate. (laughs) But if, if if you're a law school graduate looking for inspiration, and I think every person coming out of law school needs to start in this profession inspired, I can't think of a better place to begin. What are you looking forward to most this summer? I'm looking forward to vacation in Greensboro, Vermont, oh, uh, which great. is way up in the northeastern corner of Vermont in what they call the Northeast Kingdom. Uh, we go to a place there called Highland Lodge. It's a little lodge with 10 cottages. We've been going there since 1997. Our kids were five and three when we first started going there. And we've gone there every year since, including last year. Uh, we, we were able to uh, get tested and quarantine and meet the Vermont requirements for coming in from out of state. A place on a, on a lake, Caspian Lake, just it's remote. For, for many years when we went there, there was no Wi-Fi. I love the ritual of it, the consistency of having a place to go back year after year. And you know, our kids come with us. Our kids are now 31 and 29. They still want to go back there on vacation with the family. Last question here on the podcast. This is always the same question, but we always ask it. Is there anything you'd like to say to the Albany Law School community? You're lucky. You are lucky to be at Albany Law School. You're at an extraordinary place. I hope you appreciate it. I know the law school world pretty well. I teach at another law school uh, and am heavily involved there. I uh, guest lecture at a number of other law schools. You are lucky. You have something special there. Appreciate it. Cultivate that culture. Cultures uh, can die if they're not appreciated and and maintained. I look at what you have there and I see something for other law schools to emulate. Jim Salmon, thank you so much for being on the Albany Law School podcast. Just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Great to be with you. 